Friends, I'd like to welcome you to this week's edition of Bishop Sheen Presents, a program where we feature some of the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. For over 50 years, Archbishop Sheen captivated audiences on both radio and television. Millions tuned in each week to hear his messages of hope and encouragement. It is my prayer that these meditations presented today will truly touch your heart and show you that your life is worth living. Hello, my dear friends, and welcome to another edition of Bishop Sheen Presents. I'm your host, Al Smith, and I want to thank you for joining me for uh, this opportunity to learn our faith together. And uh, we'll be sharing with you today uh, one of Archbishop Sheen's catechism lessons, and it will be on the topic of conscience. And uh, But we'll begin our program with uh, a classic audio recording from the year 1948, uh, from his Catholic Hour radio address. And he's going to be talking about morbidity and the denial of guilt. And uh, we see this all the time in society. People deny their guilt. They bury it. And, of course, it has an effect on their conscience. And so I think combining these two talks today will lend itself well to our uh, experience today of learning our faith. And so, again, we've been enjoying these uh, classic uh, Catholic Hour recordings uh, from the war years. And um, again, we enjoyed um, a number of uh, what I'd like to say timely addresses because uh, even uh, though he spoke these words in the 40s, uh, they're like uh, he's speaking to us today uh, in the year 2023. So uh, this is what's very refreshing about Archbishop Sheen. And so, as I said, we'll begin with this first talk, which is, uh, again, titled The Morbidity and the Denial of Guilt uh, from the Catholic Hour in 1948. And then we'll follow that up with a catechism lesson on the topic of conscience. Please enjoy. Friends, it used to be that people escaped admitting their own guilt by blaming it on to capitalism, communism, lack of soft drink parlors, grade B milk, and naughty ductless glands. Now a new psychology arises to blame the unconsciousness or poor old Oedipus and wrinkled Electra. It is then claimed that the fault is in that part of ourselves which is not responsible, namely the unconsciousness. To prevent being misunderstood in this broadcast, let it here be stated unequivocally, first, that there is nothing wrong, but there is even something commendable about a psychological method which cures mental diseases by making the unconscious conscious. Secondly, not every mental disorder has an ethical or moral foundation. For that reason, medical science has a vast area in which it can legitimately operate. We wish to commend those genuinely scientific psychiatrists who, finding a spiritual disorder in patients, send them to a spiritual director, just as we, finding a mental disease in our spiritual patients, 
send them to good psychiatrists. We are here concerned, and only here concerned, with those sex systems rejected by sound psychiatrists which exclude all moral responsibility by denying personal sin and guilt on the ground that the idea of sin induces morbidity or a guilt complex in the individual and thereby makes him abnormal. These dilettantes and escapists who deny personal guilt make all people nice people in the sense that they are without sin or guilt. By one magic stroke, they rid the world of nasty people, here understood as sinners. The nice people, according to these escapists, may be diseased, but they are not sinners. We are going to maintain the contrary thesis, that the increase of mental disorders, psychoses and neuroses, is due to the fact that too many people think they are nice or sinless, and that there would be much more hope for them if they began to recognize that they were not nice at all, maybe even nasty. And by nasty, we here mean responsible for their guilt. And this was the message our Lord drove home in the parable of the two men who went up in the temple to pray. The Pharisee, who was a very nice man, prayed in the front of the temple somewhat as follows. I thank thee, O Lord, that my Freudian analyst has told me there is no such thing as guilt, that sin is a myth, and that thou, O God, art only a projection of my father complex. There may be something wrong with my repressed instincts, but there's nothing wrong with my soul. I give relief to the Soviet Union... I contribute 10% of my income to the Society for the Elimination of Religious Superstition, and I diet three times a week. I thank thee that I am not as the rest of men, those nasty people, such as that Christian there in the back of the temple who thinks that he is a sinner, and that his soul stands in the need of grace. I admit, O Father Complex, that my unconsciousness may be tangled, but my conscience is sound. I may have an Oedipus complex, but I have no sin. And all the while in the back of the temple, some nasty individual was striking his breast saying, Oh God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Our Lord said that he went down to his house justified. Never deny personal guilt. It will have serious effects on your soul. It destroys character by eliminating responsibility and therefore freedom. It makes forgiveness impossible by denying that there is a sin to be forgiven. It turns people into scandal-mongers, gossips, tale-bearers, and violent revolutionists because it makes them project their own guilt to others in order to escape their own uneasy conscience. It leads to greater sin by making conscience less reproachful 
and virtue more distasteful. And finally, denial of personal guilt leads to despair, which develops into a positive fanaticism against religion and morality, which hatred is a sure sign of guilt. In brief, the principal reason for the unhappiness of the modern soul is his denial of personal guilt, thereby excluding not only forgiveness, but the peace that comes from a reconciliation with a God of love. The worst thing in the world is not sin, but the denial of sin. That is the unforgivable sin. If the blind deny that they are blind, how shall they ever see? Our Lord did not like the nice people who denied personal guilt. What moved him to invective was not badness, but self-righteous goodness. We find no words of condemnation against Magdalene who stumbled on the problem of sex or on the penitent thief who found it difficult to respect possessions. Rather do we find our Lord inveighing against the scribes and the Pharisees who denied they were responsible for their wrongs. Against them he pronounced his woes. Woe to you, hypocrites, blind guides, serpents, generation of vipers, whited sepulchres, outside clean, inside full of dead men's bones. He said that the harlots and the quislings would enter the kingdom of heaven before the self-righteous and the smug. He would not condemn those whom society condemned, but rather those who had sinned and had not yet been found out or refuse to admit it. There are two very grave misunderstandings concerning the nature of sin. The first is, the essence of sin and guilt is not a violation of a code, because there can be no sin where there is no personal relationship. Sin is an affront by one spirit against another. It is an outrage of love. Because sin is the breaking of a relationship with divine love, it follows that it cannot be treated exclusively by psychology. It is not enough just to analyze sin in order to cure it. Simply because the dentist learns that the decay in the tooth is due to eating candy, it does not follow that the tooth immediately becomes healthy. Digging about an oak tree to discover the rotten acorn from which it originally came is not explaining the tree. Sin can be healed only by the restoration of friendship with God. Nor is it true that a sense of sin induces a guilt complex or morbidity, as they contend. Because a child goes to school, does he develop an ignorance complex? Because the sick go to the doctor, do they have a sickness complex? The student concentrates not upon his own ignorance, 
but upon the wisdom of the teacher. The sick concentrate not upon their own illness, but upon the curative powers of the doctor. And the sinner concentrates not on his own guilt, but upon the redemptive powers of the divine physician. There is no evidence whatever to sustain the position that a consciousness of sin has a tendency to make a person morbid. To call a soul an escapist when it asks God for forgiveness is like calling a man whose house is on fire an escapist because he sends for the fire department. If there is any morbidity that comes from a consciousness of sin, it is rather a jovial sanity compared to the terrible morbidity which comes from those who are sick and refuse to admit their own illness. The greatest refinement of pride, the most contemptible form of escapism, is to refrain from examining one's own conscience lest one's own sins be discovered. As a drunkard will sometimes become conscious of the gravity of his intemperance and his sin only through the startling vision of how much he has wrecked his own home and the wife whom he loved. So two sinners come to an understanding of their wickedness when they understand what they have done to divine love. That is why the cross has always played a very central part in the Christian picture. It brings out what is worst in us by revealing what sin can do to goodness and love namely crucify it. And it brings out the best in us by revealing that goodness can forgive sin at the moment of sin's greatest cruelty. The cross of Christ does something for us that we cannot do for ourselves. Everywhere else in the world we are spectators, but facing the vision of the cross, we pass from spectatorship to participation. And if anyone thinks that the confession of guilt is escapism, let him try once kneeling at the foot of a crucifix. You can kneel before a statue of Buddha not feel involved, but you do feel involved when you kneel before a crucifix. One look at Christ on the cross and the scab is torn away from the ulcerous depths of sin. Just one flash of the light of the world and there is shattered all the blindness that sins have begotten. There is burned into the soul an idea of our true relationship with God. It takes love to see that love has been hurt. And divine love always rewards that recognition by forgiveness. Once that forgiveness is given, a relationship is restored in a much more intimate way than ever before. There is more joy among the angels of heaven for one sinner doing penance than for ninety-nine just who need not penance. When love is understood aright, we do not feel sorry in order that God may forgive, but rather we feel sorry at accepting that forgiveness. God has already forgiven us before we repent, it is the sorrow on our part that makes that forgiveness available. The Father did not for 
give the prodigal son when he saw him coming down the roadway. The father had already forgiven the son from the very beginning. But the forgiveness did not become effective until the son was sorry for having broken that relationship and for having sought restoration. Just as there has always been music in the air, but we do not hear it unless our radio is attuned to it, so there is forgiveness. But it is not received until there is sorrow and purpose of amendment. Nature has many secrets to give us, but it will not surrender them until we sit down patiently before it and obey its laws. And only by submission do we receive God's grace. When people say that God will not forgive their sins, they mean they have no desire to be forgiven. To be a sinner is your distress. To know that you are a sinner is your hope. The nasty people are convertible people because they possess within themselves an emptiness. Not like the Grand Canyon, but like a nest which can be filled. They have a hunger and a thirst for something outside themselves. And this sin and sense of sin in them does not beget a forlorn despair, but a creative despair which makes them realize that only God can help them. Our blessed Lord was very fond of nasty people. His enemies constantly charged him with the fact that he ate with nasty people and with sinners. One of the greatest apostles came to our Lord through hate. It is the prodigal son who was placed before his virtuous brother. And the son who rebelled and repented was preferred to the one who pleaded loyalty and then disobeyed. The lost sheep was put on the shoulders of the good shepherd. The 99 were left in the field. The lost coin was found and made an occasion for rejoicing, but there was never any rejoicing for the possession of the nine. The Savior turns out the buyers and sellers from the temple and then takes a child on his knees and says that it will enter the kingdom of heaven before the self-wise university professors. He washes the feet of his disciples, reprimands those who seek first places at table, talks freely to women whom the whole nation hates, and intervenes to protect an adulteress from stoning at the hands of those whose adultery had not yet been found out. The announcement of his incarnation was made to a virgin, but the announcement of his resurrection was made to a converted sinner. You see how much hope there is for you? Provided you do not deny personal responsibility? Two very devastating things will happen to you when you bring your sins to our Lord. An overwhelming sense of shame and a glorious feeling of liberation. because our Lord preferred the nasty people to the nice people, it is very likely that if we could look up into heaven, we would probably see some sights that would very much scandalize us. We would say, 
how did that woman ever get there? Or how did he get there? I knew him when. There will be many in heaven whom we never expected to see there. And there will be many we expected to see there who will not be there. But the greatest surprise of all will be that we are there. There is not a person who denies personal guilt who is a happy person. Not a one. But there is not a person who has admitted his guilt and has been forgiven who is unhappy. A sense of moral unworthiness has never saddened a soul. But I know thousands of souls that are sad and frustrated simply because some dilettante has told them that there's no such thing as personal guilt. There's no hope for you if you think you're a nice person. But there's a world of hope for you if you think you are nasty. Be not deceived then by those sexologists and escapists who refuse to face the fact of personal guilt. Do not let them deceive you. Rather, you make an hour a day, spend it in prayer and meditation, and be brave enough during that hour to confront yourself with yourself at all times, having trust in God. The greater the consciousness of your misery, the greater will be your trust and confidence in God. For how could God show the attribute of mercy unless there was misery? God would have been infinite goodness if he never made the world. But unless nasty people like me existed, he never could have shown his mercy. Are you nasty too? If you are, then listen in next week. And I will tell you how to examine your conscience, not your unconsciousness. God love you. And now we invite you, our listeners, to join Monsignor Sheen as he offers this prayer. God from whom to turn is to fall. Toward whom to turn is to rise again. In whom to dwell is to find peace. God whom no one loses unless he be deceived. Whom no one seeks unless he has been called. Whom no one finds unless he is made pure. God whom to forsake is to perish. Whom to search for is the same to love. Whom to see is the same as to possess. God toward whom faith urges us. Toward whom hope raises us. Toward whom charity unites us. God in whom and by whom and through whom alone we can be made happy. It is to thee we address our prayer. We beseech thee. Hear us. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program, 
Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that reflection from the year 1948. And um, again, I, I love how Fulton Sheen, um, again, adds a little comedy to his talks. Uh, just, I know it's a serious subject matter, and uh, but yet he takes that time to um, make us, uh, in a way, uh, giggle a little bit. Uh, and I love that one uh, part in the talk when he talked about, uh, again, those who get to heaven. And uh, we'll be surprised uh, when we see certain people there that we didn't expect to be there. But the biggest surprise of all is that we'll be there. And so, uh, again, he'd love to ask us to take ourselves lightly. Um, sometimes we're a little bit too serious. And so, um, again, that idea of lightening up uh, can really help um, make things a lot easier. And, of course, uh, I love how Fulton Sheen uh, reminds us to pray every day, to pray the holy hour. And, um, again, Fulton Sheen uh, wrote to many uh, meditations on the holy hour. In fact, uh, there's a beautiful book available on Amazon. Uh, it's one of the best-selling books, um, uh, again, of its kind. It's just simply called The Holy Hour Prayer Book by Archbishop Sheen. There's a beautiful uh, picture of the monstrance on the altar uh, at uh, St. Mary's Cathedral in Peoria. And again, it's uh, full of beautiful meditations of uh, thoughts to bring with you during the holy hour. And so I can't recommend it enough. And uh, whenever I look on Amazon, I see, again, it's uh, many times ranked number one uh, in prayer books and, of course, um, you know, especially Catholic books. And so, uh, again, there's a resurgence in the holy hour. I really believe that. And I'm starting to see many churches, again, add time through the week uh, to offer holy hours. And, um, and many churches have beautiful adoration chapels attached to them. So, again, what better reading to bring with you than Archbishop Sheen's book on the holy hours? So, again, you can find that on Amazon uh, in all over the world, uh, Australia, Europe, America, Canada. Again, just, uh, just search uh, Holy Hour Prayer Book by Fulton Sheen. And you'll see that picture of our Eucharistic Lord on the cover. All right. Catechism. We need to learn our faith. And uh, been really enjoying uh, sharing these lessons with you. And I mentioned last week uh, in the broadcast that we're going to try to cover the 50 lessons that uh, Fulton Sheen offered on the Catechism. And uh, do one each week for sure. And so... Um, We'll see how we do, but uh, I want to learn my faith. Um, you know, you think you know it all. You think you've been, you know, a Catholic all your life, but yet there's things that we don't know. And um, I think even Pope Benedict XVI wrote that he's still learning uh, in his uh, his later years. Um, you can never learn it all. So again, we will rely on Fulton Sheen to help us with this. And so we're going to uh, offer you uh, lesson number two in the Catechism series, and it's on the topic of conscience. And so I just invite you now to uh, just enjoy the wit and the wisdom of the Venerable Sheen as he teaches us about conscience. Please enjoy. Peace be to you. A man of the theater came to see me a few years ago. And his reason was this. 
He said that one night after a show, he was talking to a number of theatrical people backstage. And they said to him, You are a Catholic, aren't you? He said, I used to be. But he said, I've done considerable reading in comparative religion, psychology, psychiatry, and metaphysics, and I had to give it up. Nobody could answer my question. Someone said, why don't you go to Bishop Sheen and have him answer your question? So he said, here I am. And I have a number of questions I would like to put to you. And I said to him, now, before you ask a single question, you go back to the hotel where you were living, get rid of that chorus girl you're living with, and then come back and ask the questions. And he threw up his hands and laughed, and he said, oh, certainly. I'm trying to fool you just like I fool myself. That's the reason. I saw him not very long ago. And I said, well, you are still off the track, aren't you? He said, yes, but I have not thrown away the map. Now, here was a perfect example of someone covering up conscience. And it is of conscience that we would speak. For conscience carries on with us a kind of an unbearable repartee. We are very different from the rest of creatures, regardless of how much we insist on similarities. What makes us different is that we can reflect, turn back upon ourselves. No stone can ever turn a part of itself on another part of itself. No page of a book can so completely be absorbed in another page of the book that it understands that page. But we humans... We have the power of looking at ourselves in a kind of a mirror. We can be pleased with ourselves. We can be angry with ourselves. And so it is possible for us to have tensions of all kinds which do not happen to animals. You will never in your life see a rooster with an Oedipus complex. You will never, never see a pig with an Oedipus complex. No animal ever has a complex. Scientists have induced ulcers indeed in some animals, but they were introduced by humans. The animal left to itself, however, never feels this tension. We do. We feel a tension between what we are 
and what we ought to be. Between the ideal and the fact. We are somewhat like a mountain climber. We see the peak way up at the top to which we're climbing and which we hope to attain. And down below, we see the abyss into which at any time we might fall. Now, why is it that conscience does trouble us this particular way? when it does not trouble the rest of creatures. Why is it we try to escape it? Think of how many abnormal ways there are of avoiding it. Sleeping tablets, alcoholism. These are just a few of the ways of avoiding this unbearable repartee. Then have you ever noticed how pessimistic some people become? They are always expecting rain on the day of the picnic. Everything is going to turn out to be a catastrophe. They know it. Why do they take this attitude? Because in their own heart and soul, they know very well that the way they are living and violating their conscience deserves some kind of an unfavorable judgment. And so they bring back that judgment upon themselves and are always awaiting the electric chair. Their judgments are influenced by this pessimistic attitude. Another psychological manifestation of avoidance of conscience is hypercriticism. The neighbor is always wrong. And have you ever noticed the letters that are sent to the newspapers? They begin with, the trouble with my husband is this. I cannot stand my wife because my son is stubborn. And then in the ordinary affairs of life, the poor neighbor never can do anything good. Why this hypercritical attitude? Abraham Lincoln once gave the right answer to it. He was going into a hospital in Alexandria during the Civil War. And at a time when presidents were not well known because Brady had not circulated all of his photographs. And as he went into the hospital, some young man running out bumped into Lincoln sent him sprawling on the floor and shouted at Lincoln, Get out of the way, you big, long, lean, lanky, stiff, 
And Lincoln looked up at him and said, Young man, what's troubling you on the inside? And so with hypercriticism. We are so conscious of a real sense of justice that if we do not right ourselves, we have to be writing everybody else. For example, you cannot go into a room where there are a series of pictures and one of them is two inches awry without straightening out that picture. You want everything in order. We want everything in order except ourselves. Then there are more serious escapes from this unbearable repartee. And in order to let you know that human nature is always active in the same way, let us go back to Shakespeare. In his great tragedy, Macbeth, Shakespeare, long before we had any of the profound findings of psychiatry, described a perfect case of psychosis and a perfect case of neurosis. It was Macbeth that had the psychosis. Lady Macbeth, his wife, had the neurosis. You remember the story? In order to attain the throne, Banquo the king was murdered. Conscience bothered Macbeth so much that he developed a psychosis and he began to see the ghost of Banquo. He imagined he saw him seated at a table. The dagger that killed the king was constantly before him. What is this dagger before my eyes? It was just imagination. But the projection of his inner guilt. And then note the great wisdom of Shakespeare in pointing out that whenever there is a revolution against conscience, there will very often come skepticism, doubt, atheism, a complete negation of the philosophy of life. And Macbeth reached a stage where to him life was just a candle. Out, out, brief candle. Life had no meaning. And so the petty pace creeps on from day to day. And all our yesterdays have lighted fools their way to dusty death. I tell you, skepticism, agnosticism, and atheism 
have not rational foundations. Their foundations are in the moral order. First, there was a revolt against conscience. Then look at Lady Macbeth. Her guilt manifested itself in a neurosis. And the maid said of Lady Macbeth that she washed her hands every quarter of an hour. There was a sense of guilt in her which she had completely negated. And instead of washing her soul, as she knows she should have done. She projected it to her hands. And her hands were always smeared with blood, it seemed. She said that not all the waters of the seven seas were enough to wash this blood incarnadine from her hand. Guilt will out. And one can see it when one knows souls well, so very easily. I was once instructing a young woman and she had finished on tape and on records, not these, but others which I had made before. She had finished about 15 hours. And after the first instruction on confession, she said to my secretary, I'm finished. No more lessons. I do not want to hear anything about the Catholic Church from now on. My secretary phoned me, and I said, ask her to finish the other three on the subject of confession, and then I will see her. I saw her at the end of the three, and she was in a veritable crisis. She was screaming, shrieking, let me out of here. Let me out of here. I never want to hear anything again about the church after hearing this talk on confession. Well, it took about five minutes to calm her down, and I said, listen, my good girl, there is absolutely no proportion between what you have heard and the way you are acting. So there has to be something else. Do you know what I think is wrong? I think you've had an abortion. He said, yes. So happy that it was out. Now see how that bad conscience came out? An attack upon confession, the truths of faith. That was not the problem. Very often, we will find that an attack upon religion 
satisfies for the moment this uneasy conscience. Now, what does this conscience mean? What significance has it for us? Well, conscience is something like the United States government. The United States government is divided into three offices. The legislative, the executive, and the judicial. The legislative, Congress that makes laws. The executive, the president, who witnesses to the conformity of law and action. And finally, the Supreme Court, which judges that conformity. Now, we have all of these inside of us. First of all, we have a Congress. There's a law inside saying, Thou shalt, thou shalt not. I might interrupt myself for a moment to define conscience very simply as conscience is that which makes you feel good after. And wrong is that which makes you feel bad after. So we have a law. Thou shalt, thou shalt not. Where does this law come from? From myself? No, if it did, I could do away with it. If I made it, I could unmake it. Does it come from society? It does not. Because sometimes conscience praises me when society condemns me. And sometimes conscience will condemn me when society praises me. Where does it come from then? If not from myself. Where then does the executive side of conscience come from? It too judges whether or not I have obeyed that law. It says, I was there. I saw you. And though others will say, oh, pay no attention to it, one knows very well that one must. And one also knows the motives that inspired the act. And finally, it judges us. And if therefore, it praises us for certain actions and we feel somewhat the same happiness and joy that we would from being praised by a father or mother. If we feel the same sadness and unhappiness that we feel when condemned by a father or a mother, it must be that behind conscience is some person. 
the divine thou. It is the standard of our life. Most of the mental problems from which people suffer today is due to a mental revolt against this law which is written in their own hearts. And how often, just as soon as people return again to conscience, peace comes back. Life is very, very different. And that is what we are after. Peace of soul. Therefore, this unbearable repartee is only one side of conscience. It is the conscience that tells us when we do wrong, so that we feel on the inside as if we've broken a bone. The bone pains because the bone is not where it ought to be. Our conscience troubles us because the conscience is not where it ought to be. And thanks to this power of self-reflection that we have, we can see ourselves in particularly at night. As the poet put it, every atheist is afraid in the dark. And it's a gentle voice saying, you are unhappy. This is not the way. Your freedom is never destroyed. But you feel the sweet summons. And you ask, well, why is it not stronger? It's strong enough if we would listen. And God respects our freedom that he gave us. You perhaps may have seen a painting of Holman Hunt. It is a picture of our blessed Lord standing at an ivy-covered door. A lantern in his hand. And knocking. Holman Hunt was very much criticized for that painting. And the critics said... There was no latch on the outside of the door. That was right. There was no latch on the outside of the door. It was conscience. The door is opened from the inside. God love you. You are listening to Radio Maria Canada. We now continue with the program... Bishop Sheen presents, hosted by Al Smith. Well, my dear friends, I hope you enjoyed that catechism lesson by Archbishop Fulton J. Sheen. 
And uh, again, I was doing my homework and uh, found out that Archbishop Sheen uh, gave these catechism lessons uh, to uh, many groups. Uh, He would have uh, what I like to call uh, instruction time, where he would, you know, gather large groups together and go through these lessons with them. And um, again, when you think of the hundreds of thousands of souls uh, that were brought into the church through Fulton Sheen. Uh, this is how he had to do it. And um, again, he did many of the uh, instructions individually. Uh, we hear of many movie stars and uh, famous personalities who were converted uh, through the Council of Fulton Sheen. And so he took the time in 1965 to put these lessons to vinyl. And uh, many people purchased those 26-volume set. The, uh, it was, you know, in a box, and of course there was 26 uh, large, long-playing vinyl records, and uh, people would listen uh, to the Catechism series. And so uh, with technology being the way it is, those then turned into uh, cassette tapes, and then into CDs, and now into uh, MP3s that you can have on your cell phone, computer, and any uh, you know technical device you have, it seems. And so I invite you to uh, download the uh, Sheen Catechism. You can find it uh, on the web. Um, I know that our website, bishopsheentoday.com, is a good resource that will point you uh, to all things Sheen. Uh, not only are there audio recordings on the website, there's also a number of videos that are available to watch. And um, I think uh, last count, well, there was 150 of them on the website, and there are his television shows and his lectures. And of course, there's a great book section there where you can uh, purchase books found on the internet. Uh, you know, again, Fulton Sheen wrote 66 books, and and I believe there was a few more than that, but uh, that's the number I've been told. Uh, but again, many uh, magazine articles and newspaper articles. He had a syndicated column in the newspapers for 30 consecutive years. So uh, he did a lot of writing, and a lot of it is available in digital libraries from the Catholic University of America. And so uh, may I recommend that you visit the website bishopsheentoday.com, and there you'll find, hopefully, what you're looking for. Again, I want to thank you for joining me, and um, I'm really enjoying this journey. We're just beginning the new year together, and I'd ask you to invite a friend uh, to come along next time. And may I take a moment to just ask you to pray for us here. Uh, We, of course, have been expanding our marketplace. Uh, We began on one radio station in Canada in the year 2012. And uh, by the grace of God, we have uh, been growing our family. And, of course, we're on uh, dozens of stations in the United States of America. And, of course, uh, we are now heard in Australia And uh, we're praying that doors will open up for us in the Philippines, uh, in the United Kingdom, and in Ireland. So, um, again, with your prayers, uh, again, those doors will open. So, uh, please pray that we can share the wit and wisdom of Archbishop Sheen all over the world. My dear friends, look forward to being with you next week. And until that time, may the good Lord continue to bless you and keep you. May the Lord let his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And may the Lord look upon you kindly and bring you peace. God love you. You have been listening to Bishop Sheen Presents, hosted by Al Smith. 
here on Radio Maria Canada.